Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today, I have a special guest, Ken Harrison. He is the CEO of Promise Keepers, and we're going to talk about his new book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. And Ken Harrison had an incident happen to him, I think when he was 30 years old, we'll get into it in a minute, but that completely radically changed the way he understood Christianity and the Christian life. And that's why he wrote this book. He also, Ken Harrison was an LAPD police officer in South Central LA when it used to be called South Central LA. Now it's just called South LA, but he was a police officer. And we'll talk a little bit about that too, because it was pretty wild. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Welcome, Ken Harrison. You know, I'm, I'm really glad to be on this show with you because, as I have said to you off camera many times, you are one of the heroes of the faith. You are the example of what a godly man is. You've given up everything for that precious pearl in the field, man. Uh, Beckett, so, dude. Well, I'm just like, blo- I'm I'm still in shock that God plucked me out of darkness and pulled me into his marvelous light. I mean, that's the real, that's the real motivation for it because I'm just, uh, I mean, still every day I wake up and I'm like, I'm in the kingdom of God. I know God. I have a relationship with the king of the universe. This is crazy. Like I was so lost. I, w- I mean, everyone obviously is so lost before they come to Christ, but I was really lost. And um, 
And so I want to get into your story and I want to start with, first of all, we're going to talk about your book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World, which is very apropos for what you just mentioned to me before we started. Talk about, so you, you're the CEO and chairman of, is it, of Promise Keepers. Some people might not remember what that is or know what that is. I kind of vaguely remember what it is because I think when I was a kid, my dad attended a, a Promise Keepers event in Dallas, Texas at like probably like a Cowboy Stadium or something huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is Promise Keepers? And and then let's talk about what's going on with it right now. Do you remember the first time we ever talked? You were like, dude, the, the head of Promise Keepers, you guys were like the enemy. Yeah, back in the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you totally were. I was like, oh my gosh, my gross, like promise keepers. Um, I was so revolted by it. And now, of yeah. course, you're, now you're on my show and I love yeah. promise keepers. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually promise keepers is massively understood because of the way our culture is couched things. But in the 90s, it was the biggest movement of men in the history of the church and one of the biggest movements in the church period. And so what it was, was NFL stadiums filled with men worshiping the Lord and being taught how to act like men, which I say that and a lot of people who, you know, that's bad. Well, no, acting like a man of God is really good and it's good for everybody. So it, it came to its height in 97 when Promise Keepers sold out 22 NFL stadiums in one year and then had the, the Stand in the Gap, which a lot of people call the Million Man March, which is not what it was actually called. It was Stand in the Gap, where 1.4 million men came to Washington, D.C. It was the biggest gathering in the history of Washington, D.C., and it was this huge cultural moment. But after 97, it was sort of like you had this huge thing, then there was no what now. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, we had this huge cultural revolution. What do we do with it? And nobody really knew. So Promise Keepers kind of started to decline. And then I, I brought it back a few years ago, really, from the precipice. And um, now we had one event at, at Dallas Cowboy Stadium two years ago. We had about 30,000 guys there in the middle of COVID. It was great. And now we're putting together this tour because we realized um, in this day and age, you know, 25 years later with the Internet and apps and whatnot, I, I don't think we need to go through the massive cost and in infrastructure planning of an NFL stadium event. I think we're better off doing a tour where we go to major churches and auditoriums where we get three, four, five thousand 5,000 guys together, but we can do 40 in a year rather than one in a year. And so that's what we're doing, this Daring Faith Tour. The main idea is that there is an epidemic of the friendless American male, and that's why of the 127 suicides per day, 80% of those are middle-aged men because they have no friends, they've lost their identity. You know, I want to give shorter answers, but how many times have we heard, don't don't correct a transgender person or don't don't tell Christ to a gay person, it's dangerous, they may commit suicide. But 80% of the suicides are middle-aged men and ain't nobody got a problem with telling them they suck, right? It, yeah, so well, I mean- It just goes fifth, to show yeah. you the imbalance. I just, yeah, I, unfortunately I, I had to see the Barbie movie cause I did an episode on it and <laughs> you did. Yeah. It, it, it's the title of the episode is called brainwash Barbie. And I mean, the entire movie is about the f- female Barbies bashing the male Barbies. And the entire movie is 
all is all about the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and how women, all the women in the movie are completely faultless. Like they're just perfect. Never, you know, no problems at all, but all the men are fools, idiots, toxic. And, um, and it, this is, I think this is partly why the suicide, as you said, the suicide rate for men is so high because the culture is just shouting. I mean, every day in the New York Times, there's like five articles about how men, basically, I mean, in the New York Times, it's funny because there's rarely a positive article about a man in the New York Times. It's always about women. It's always about other things. Uh, feminists and 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 trans and this and that but it's net there's there's very few you know positive articles and obviously on tv movies commercials men are always the idiots you know the um uh and so the the fools and so i think that has had a dramatic effect on men and the society in our culture right now you know it, it's about the message of christ so it's not that men aren't all those things. I mean, someone could be watching, you know, who had a terrible father or who's been abused by men and say, but those things are true. Well, they're true about some men and to various extents, but that's where the grace of Jesus Christ comes in. I mean, Jesus Christ, his love, his grace and acceptance changed you completely. It has made me a completely different man, although I was a Christian from very little. So, you know, I've sort of had a different walk. But we have to, the, the culture today says we're going to get you. It's a cancel culture. If you ever said anything wrong, if you ever did anything wrong, we're going to cancel you and exclude you. You're not part of the club anymore. And the true message of Jesus Christ is everybody is welcome. I don't care what you did. I don't care how bad you were. He is the prodigal son's father. The moment you believe in him and repent, he will come running to you and pick you up in his arms and say, let's kill a fattened calf for you. My son has come home. That's the message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remind men. It's not that you don't suck. It's that we have a, the the grace of Jesus Christ can make you unsuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, in cancel culture, there's no forgiveness or redemption, which is the, it's the opposite of the gospel. So it's just like this kind of permanent, um, you know, permanent shame. And there's no, there's no way out. It's just, there's absolutely no way out. So tell me about Promise Keepers, because you were mentioning, you know, there there were some events that were set up at different places in the country, and they have been canceled. So what happened there? So you and I met over the first one, um, and I, it's great. I mean, I count you as a great friend. And the, whole, the whole story of the Bible is God taking Satan's plans and turning him into his glory, right? And uh, And those who obey him get the joy and the peace and the reward of, of, of being a part of that. And those who reject him don't. So it started with Belmont college. We were shocked. We had a signed contract. We were supposed to go there, just call men together for three and a half hours on a Friday night to worship Jesus. That's all. And promise keepers put out a statement for pride month. And so one of the things we see as our job is to help men understand how to respond to the times, what the mm-hmm. culture in which we're in which is really important, especially in, in Christendom, because a lot of guys, they understand the Bible, but they sometimes miss what's happening with the younger generation. So we put out a statement for Pride Month, and it basically said in a very short little thing, a very loving thing, that mar- uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, it gives some Bible verses, that gender has become an idol, and God created male and female Bible verses. 
that Jesus Christ saves all who repent and come to him, Bible verses, and then following Jesus is costly and often countercultural. That's it. Belmont College is supposed to be a Christian college. Said so because of that, you're fanning the flames of the cultural wars and they canceled us even though we had a signed contract. We'll be right back after this short break. Wow. So that created quite a media stir. stir. It's amazing how, how big that story got across the country. And Belmont was very angry. And, and I met with some of the trustees who were great and said, we didn't realize our school had this many problems and we're going to make some fixes. So great. I hope they do. Now, we had several churches lined up. Most of those churches have also canceled on us. We haven't announced that yet. But even the churches, and basically the answer we've been given is we don't want protesters. We don't want picketers. And, you know, the whole thing about the church and the promises of Jesus Christ are when you stand up for the truth, people will hate you. Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. And so... We want to get the truth out there and even churches, which have a lot become massive institutions with huge budgets, they've canceled us. The great news is because of that, we've had a lot better venues. You and I were talking offline. I don't want to mention what they are until we have them totally lined up, but we've had some much better places come in and say, well, they may not want you, but we'd love to have you. So I think the Promise Keepers Tour is blowing up as a result of us being canceled. So thank, thank the Lord. That's That's awesome. Praise God. Um, and so that's just wild. Uh, it's so wild that Christian institutions, Christian churches and universities are all caving to culture. And your book is about, uh, you know, being courageous, having courageous faith, having daring faith as, as the title says, a daring faith in a cowardly world. And so you had a turning point, I think when you were 30 years old, was that when you had the jet ski accident? Yeah. How did that? Because you, how do you came to faith at like twelve years old, right? You were very young, five. five. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, what happened after that accident? How did that change impact your faith and the way you saw the Christian life? So, I think one of the great things we all have to guard against is complacency, right? And I do believe that the church is in a complacent state, and so for me individually. Um, my dad was shot in the Watts riots. He was an LA cop, retires um, from from complications, moves us to Oregon, goes up the aisle at a, at a Baptist church to get become a Christian. And I was five and I ran up after him. And I really got saved at five. We really loved the Lord. We used to go around knocking on doors by the clip on tie and I had another shoe. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. Yeah. I, I chased down Ricky Nelson once in the airport. My mom said, That's a rock star. So That's I chased amazing. him down. And I told him about Jesus for like five minutes. And that dude stood there and listened to like a six-year-old kid tell him about Jesus for, for like five minutes. And I had him attract and said, I hope I'll see a Tri-City Baptist temple. And he was so gracious and nice, you know. That's hilarious. So, yeah. Um, so that that was the kid I was. I mean, I love Jesus. So at, I go through the, I become an L.A. cop. I get into a shoot. Yeah, so you were that. you were an LAPD cop. And did, were you in South Central L.A.? Was that where you yeah. were? Which so is crazy. I worked Newton Division, which is called Shooting Newton, from all the, the officer involved shootings. And then I worked Rampart Division, which is kind of near where you are now, down Wilshire MacArthur Park area. That's what the, the, the TV up. show The Shield was based on that. Uh, oh, was it? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Rampart. And then I worked 77th Division, which is the notorious Watts, like, you know, the nickname for us was gunfighters and all that stuff because of all the violence. 
So, you know, I, I'd done all that. I mean, high speed shoot. And, and I, we could go on and on. And I told you a few of the stories about that. It was every bit as violent and high speed pursuits and shootings as you would think um, back in the height of the, the drug wars, the Crips, the Bloods, 18th Street coming in. It was crazy. Did you, were you ever, I mean, did you ever fear for your life or were you just kind of like, whatever happens, happens? Oh, man. I'll tell you one really short story that'll help yeah. illustrate it. Please so do. I'm working MacArthur Park back when it was Jimmy Carter, let all the Cubans out of prison and they'd come over and they'd all settle in MacArthur Park. And so what you had was a nice Victorian area become a massive, incredibly violent ghetto within a few years. So it was really, really bad. And so my partner and I, um, I was the driving officer. We come up to the park. It's about, it's about two o'clock in the morning. And so you had so many crackheads out there, so much, so much murder and rape. And it was insane. You just screams all night long and gunshots. So we see this huge crowd of people and a fist fight going on. So, you know, you got to break that up right away or someone's going to get murdered. Right. So we come rolling up to the curb and I look out the, the passenger window and all of a sudden, the crowd parts. Now, the LAPD in 1991, when the LAPD showed up, people got out of there because we weren't playing around. And nobody left. So immediately, right, your warning bell goes off in my head. Something's not right. No one's leaving. The crowd parts, and I see this guy walking up to the car real fast with his hand behind his back, and he's doing this weird motion like this. And so I, I yell at my partner, gun. So he kicks the door open, and I jumped out of the, the driver's door and then you know, pulled my gun in and jumped over the hood of the car. And as they came over the hood of the car, um, Duran, my partner, had, had knocked the guy down. So the guy's on his back with a gun up in the air, and Duran's struggling with the gun. trying He's got to hold his wrist. So I, I dive over the hood of the car, and I jam my gun into the mouth of the bad guy, and I start to pull the trigger. Because he's got a gun right here, right? And as I start to pull the trigger, my eyes focus. I think it was the Lord focusing my eyes, and I realized it was a 12-year-old kid. Wow. So I... I don't pull the trigger. I reach up and grab the gun next to my head right here and I rip it out of his hand. And turns out what happened was this kid had been in the country for eight days from El Salvador. They gave him a 32 auto, told him to put it in his back pocket. They would stage a fight. And when the LAPD pulls up, you walk up and shoot them both in the head. And what I saw this motion he was doing was when he went to pull the gun, the hammer got stuck on his belt loop and he was panicking. Probably my, you know, the Lord protected me. And uh, so that was the kind of thing. And I'll tell you, that wasn't, that's a, a story for sure that stands out, but it wasn't that unusual. I mean, fights and guns and sh- sh- pursuits and getting shot at. It was, um, I remember I, um, I was t- talking after a police officer. I was asked to come and speak at this school. And I, as I get done talking, you know, the hand goes up, you know, Officer Harrison, how many times do you draw your gun? And the teacher's like, oh, you know, I said, I don't know, probably five, six times a day. And the teacher said, no, no, per day? I said, yeah. I mean, I said, I average two or three felony and arrest per day and over a gun off the street per day. And he said, the last police officer before you said he'd drawn his gun five times in 10 years. I said, well, he ain't working in Watts, is he? <laughs> <laughs> How long were you on the force? Only three years. But I went through all the Rodney King stuff and... Oh, you were so, oh, wow. You were around during that, that crazy. I was in, yeah, I think I was, when did the Rodney King thing happen? Was that in 92? Yeah, I moved to LA in 93. So I, yeah, I remember kind of the aftermath of it all. I think the riots were in 93, right? Or maybe- No, 
Rodney okay. King happened in 91 and the riots were 92. Okay. So I missed yeah. those. Okay. Wow. So you were around, you were like at the heart of it all. That's it's ironic. You know, my dad having been shot in the Watts riots, you know, which he never thought those would ever happen again. And then they turn around and in my tenure, but you know, after the LAPD, I went off and, and, and got into business. And then I get by this jet ski when I'm 30 and, um, it's kind of a funny story in some ways. Uh, what didn't feel funny at the time, but um, where was this? Was this in California or where, where was this? This is back in Oregon. Oregon. So I, okay. I married my high school sweetheart and got up and started a business in Oregon. And, um, so I remember it was Labor Day weekend and I remember looking around thinking, man, everywhere I look, I see drunk people driving boats. It didn't seem like it'd be very safe to be in the water right now. I literally, as soon as I saw, I thought that this guy just hits me broadside with a jet ski and it broke all these ribs. And so they, my friends get me out of the water and they were a, a long ways away. I actually had to crawl up onto the jet ski because I felt like I'd pass out and I had a uh, life vest on, but I figured I'd pass out with my head in the water and I would drown. So I, I had enough, you know, being through so much as a cop, you know, I knew about trauma and internal bleeding. I, I crawled up and around the slip and I had to wait like 10 minutes until someone had found me and they get me to the emergency room and no one takes me seriously. And I, I remember I walked up to the thing and I'm like, I got hit by a jet ski. I broke my ribs and I'm bleeding internally and I think I'm dying. And they're like, okay, that's interesting. Go sit down. You know, so I sit down and they're taking all these other people in front of me. And I'm, imagine the pain of having all your ribs broken and just sitting there. And I've learned the lesson, by the way, they told me later, don't ever drive into an emergency room in that state. Always call an ambulance because they won't take you seriously because people yeah. can't handle the pain. Right. So anyway, after half an hour, they get me in and the doctor walks up and he's like, what happened? I tell him, he's like, so he pushes a few spots in my body and he screams, this man's bleeding internally. He's dying. And, and like, and I, I literally looked up like a comedy movie. I'm like, that's what I've been trying to tell you people. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting in the waiting room for <laughs> half an hour. Yeah. You know, I'm getting dizzy from lack of blood, you know, cause I'm bleeding so much. So um, they do a CAT scan. And in the meantime, the doctor says to me, look, dude, you ruptured your liver. He'd literally call me dude. You know, so you, you rupture your liver and, uh, he said, so if you've lost, if you've ruptured less than 40% of it, we're going to life flight you out of here. We'll cut it out. It'll grow back. If you've ruptured more than 40% of it, you got five hours to live. So he still starts to walk out of the room. And I go, hey, man, like, how will I die? He goes, what do you mean? You want to have a liver? I go, well, I know, but what kills me? Like, like, is it going to be painful? Oh, your body will poison itself to death. See ya. And he walks out. So I'm like, okay. So now. Did you call your wife at that point? Like, was she aware? So, so funny. I picked up the phone and I called her and I go, Hey babe, um, if you have time, if you're not doing anything else, you might want to swing by the emergency room at Adventist <laughs> hospital. You know, you might want to say goodbye to your husband. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, in case, you know, if you got something better, I understand. And she's pregnant with our second child, you know? So, um, but you know, what do you say on the phone? Like, I don't, Hey, I'm dying. You know, I don't, you don't want to say that. She showed up at the hospital. She's like, next time you call me, if you're in this state, tell me that you're dying. So I know you know, she's pissed. But, you know, so for an hour I lay there, like, do I feel myself, my body poisoning itself? Like, am I dying? And, and I'm really now having this conversation because I thought I had faced death a million times. And this goes back to my complacency comment. I was a really good Christian, you know, back then I was, you know, all the things of the evangelical right wing. You know, I went to church. Sunday, Sunday night, Bible study, read my Bible every day, prayed, you know, Tied. never cheated on my wife, tie. I mean, I was, you know, 
the the Americanized version of a great Christian. And now, though, all the times I faced death before were in adrenaline. I mean, literally, like the story I just told you, that's over before you really register what happens. You know what I'm saying? You're 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 in action mode, and then by the time it's over, now you're back with your partner, and now you start laughing about it because that's what cops do, right? You make jokes. And you don't really ever deal with it. But when you're laying out a gurney, it's a different deal. And so suddenly I'm like, I might be seeing Jesus in four or five hours. And when I see him and he says, you had 30 years on this earth. You had every kind of privilege you could have. You're born in a white American male who went to Christian schools, who knows the Bible. What did you do with my free gift of salvation? And I'm like, uh, I went to church. Uh, it doesn't sound very, you know, who, who was clothed because of you? Who was fed? Who was saved because of you? Who did you reach out to? Tell me how the world is different because of all the gifts I gave you. And my answer was going to be, it's not any different. I didn't do anything. And so then the doctor comes bopping back into my hotel, my hotel room, my, my, um, hospital emergency room. You know, after after an hour, it's like, hey, good news, bro. No, bro. You know, you had good news, bro. Uh, <laughs> this doctor sounds hilarious. <laughs> dude, he was, man. He goes, good news, bro. Um, you didn't rupture your kidney. You ruptured your your or your liver. You ruptured your kidney. And I go, that's good news? He goes, well, yeah, you got two of those. And so you're not going to die, man. And I go, how many ribs did I break? He's like, I don't know, a bunch of them. I mean, seriously. I'm like, did you lose a ki- Did you lose a kidney? No, I, I ruptured it. I lacerated my liver. I lacerated my lung. Peed blood like like for three days, just straight blood. And then uh, my body turned black and blue all over because the blood has nowhere to go if you bleed internally. I, I didn't know this, but but I looked like a giant bruise, like anywhere blood could pool. It was it was awful for like a month. And um, but I remember thinking I'm never going to be in that situation again. If I'm ever facing death, if if the plane's going down. If the doctor says you have a week to live, I'm going to say, I can't wait to go home because I'm going to tell the Lord, I did everything I could to save everybody I could, to love everybody I could. And that became, and life became a lot easier because you and I have talked a lot about lust, like sexuality, right? Like when you're, this, the situation you were in was no different than the situation I was in. We both had strong sexual desires that were not necessarily in line with God's will, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we both have talked about how much easier it gets when you become holy, when you become, uh, when you have an audience of one, when you learn to really love people, then you don't see people as sexual objects. In my case, it was amazing. The transformation happened to me after that, because I wasn't reading God's word to have more knowledge about God. I was reading God's word to know God. And that's a massive difference. I didn't, live my life for what somebody else might think, what my pastor might think, what my wife might think. I live my life for what Jesus might think. Now it's been 56, I'm 56, so it's been 26 years. The massive change that makes, I run into guys all the time who tell me I can't stop lusting. I just, ah, I see a girl, I'm like, you'll never stop lusting by trying not to lust. The more you try not to lust, the more you're going to lust. Because the devil's always going to be there going, dude, you you fail. The, the devil's voice is like my doctor, dude, bro. Um, <laughs> the devil says, dude, yeah. he uses that. Yeah, dude, he does. You know, at least with my devil, yeah. you fail before you're going to fail again. So why try when you fall in love with Jesus and you start to see people through his eyes? And that's my prayer every day. Lord, let me see people the way you see people. 
not as this identity or that identity, as beings created in your image who need you. And all of them can change. Let me see you through those eyes. Suddenly, lusting after women isn't a problem anymore. I can see a gal and go, oh, she's pretty. But I see a, a soul who needs Jesus. Yeah, sometimes, you know, it's funny because, you know, God saved me out of homosexuality in, in West Hollywood. And um, I, even though I still live here. But, some, you know, it's funny because after a few years of being a Christian, I would find myself every once in a while, I would find myself being like, ah, like gays, the gays, you know, kind of like being angry at the gay. And I'm like, wait a minute there, but for the grace of God, go I like, like God, I just, and then it just completely changes my heart towards them. I'm like, wait, they're, they are just as lost as I was. And they need love. And, And in fact, I had this great um this great day the other day a, a friend of mine he might be watching this now he he'll, he he might be watching the show when it comes out but um uh a friend of mine who is in that world whom I haven't spoken to in years um he reached out to me and just you know said hey Beckett I you know, I just wanted to reach out to you. I, I've been watching your videos and, and, um, I'm just really happy for you. And, and I was so excited. Um, that, that's when it really comes into focus. Cause I, I just, I felt so much love for him. And I just was, I told him, I said, you know, Scott, listen. And I, I, I explained the gospel to him again. Cause I had actually invited him to church a long time ago and he came with me one time. Um, but I explained the gospel to him and I said, listen, and it was like one of the most joyful calls I had, I've had in a while. And I, I just said, I will, if you are willing, I will disciple you. Like if I, I and if you don't know what disciple mean, discipleship means, it just means basically being a mentor and I will disciple you and we can get meet, you know, like once, whenever, like once a month, once every couple of weeks and go through the Bible together, new, the New Testament, maybe. And, um, and it's just like those moments are so amazing to me because then it just everything else just kind of fades away. All the worries of life, all the stress of life, all it's just like when you're in that moment, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and you're, you're telling someone the good news. It's just like everything else evaporates. There's nothing more to me. There's nothing more exciting than evangelizing. And so I just, yeah, I I agree with you. Like it's, it's, uh, and it changes, it changes the way you think about lust. And like, it just that all that stuff just goes away because you're like, wait a minute, this is about the kingdom of God. And that other stuff just kind of fades away and you don't even think about it. You don't focus on it. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, but you say in the book, you say that, uh, you say that we've, we've taught, this is a quote from the book. We've taught a weak and feckless Jesus who runs a weak and feckless religion. Kind of talk about that a little bit. And what, what do you mean by that? So in revelation chapter one, um, the Apostle John, who lived with Jesus for three years and, and makes a point in his book, John, to test. And he was his best friend, by the way. Yeah. And he was faster than Peter. He wants to make sure you know that too, right? 
So John, very, very close to Jesus. Jesus had kind of four tiers of the disciples, and John was in the top three, you know, with Peter, James, and John. Right. John is now exiled. All the disciples have been murdered. They've all been tortured to death. Paul's dead. John's the last one left. And he's on the island of Patmos, which is just a big rock. And tradition says the Romans tried to kill him, and they couldn't. We don't know if that's true or not. But they put him on Patmos to die. He's standing on Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him. And when John sees Jesus, he falls on his face as one dead, it says. And Jesus has to pick him up. And he describes Jesus. And it's kind of a terrifying sight. He's just massive presence. Imagine the guy who walked with Jesus for three years sees what Jesus looks like today. And he drops almost dead. He faints in terror. And Jesus picks him up and says, John, let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation about these seven churches because I've got some stuff I need to say to them. Now, that's Jesus. That's Jesus as he looks right now. If you or I saw him, I haven't walked with Jesus for three years on the earth, nor have you. Imagine our response to the to the terror of seeing the Holy One of God. And yet that's the Jesus that we act as if I can go off and be in rebellious sin. And Uncle Jesus, he'll just forgive me. He just loves me. Um, mm-hmm. We're forgetting about what Jesus said. Jesus he said, Jesus said if you love me, you'll obey my commandments too, right? He said, I came to turn father against son and mother against daughter. You say I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring the sword. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying, I came to demand that you make choice. Christianity is all about people making choices. And yeah, and it could cost you, it could cost you relationships even in your own family, you know? Yes, that's what he's saying. So he's saying, I just came to turn father against son, not that he doesn't love families, but because saying you have to make a choice. Will you follow the truth or will you not? Church in Memphis, will you cancel promise keepers because you might be uncomfortable with a few picketers or will you not? Will you, will you keep focused on all these men who desperately need Christ or will you run for safety? Which are you going to choose? So Jesus said, um, you know, a lot of really harsh words and did a lot of really harsh things always out of love, always to get people to choose him. So that's what I mean by we teach a week in fact with Jesus. So I, I was in this meeting with a bunch of major pastors. So There's probably like 50 pastors there, and they had all these big liberal churches, a lot of them. And we were talking about Jesus, and I brought up what we have just said. I brought up that. And one of the, these megachurch pastors said, I, I just don't believe in that Jesus. He said, you know, the Jesus that I believe in was nice all the time, and he would never say anything mean. I said, well, it says right here in the Bible. I mean, this is what he said. What are you, what are you talking about? Well, I, I just choose not to believe in that Jesus. And I said, well, then you don't believe in Jesus. You believe you're, in an yeah, idol you're, you're creating Jesus in your own image or, yeah, your own ideas. And I think that's what we've done in culture. I think there are a lot of people with a really wrong idea about Jesus. And let's remember, the God of the universe said, I will die I'm going to come and be tortured to death for you. But, and, then, and my death will cover every sin ever made, but I'm making a decree. The only way to access that is to believe in me and be born again. If you don't, you're going to go to the lake of fire forever and ever. So that's a, that's a God that's also the most powerful being in the universe. So this idea of, well, I can just do whatever I want. I was born gay, so everyone's just going to have to accept me. That's not what the Bible says. And, and that's where we as Christians need to lovingly rescue people from Satan's grasp, Satan's lies. When you think about your mentality 10 years ago, 
you needed somebody and you thankful think the Lord had somebody who had the stones to come to you and tell you the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you at the time were intending on mocking him. You, but the Lord got a hold of your heart. That's who we all need to be is just like you said, give the word of God out of grace and love and understand you are no better than the person you're witnessing to. The only contribution you made to your salvation was the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You ain't no different than that person, but you just happen to have Jesus and, and he or she doesn't. So let them have Jesus. And if they reject you, so what? Yeah. And by the way, I mean, just to be clear, and you make this abundantly clear in the book over over and over again, that, you know, salvation is a free gift from God. It's not based on our works. But when we are saved, those those works, as James says, faith without works is dead. Those those works flow naturally out of our relationship with Christ without because he had mercy on us, because he had grace on us. Those works, you know, theoretically flow out of that. So I just want to, you know, you make that clear in the book. Yeah, yeah, right. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that you're, by, you're saved by grace through faith. And, and this salvation is not of yourselves. It doesn't say salvation, but it's refreshed, mercy back. It's a gift of God. Let's not mention boast, right? So our salvation is strictly by his grace. But the next verse, Ephesians 2, 10 says, We are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you, Beckett, and me, the day we got saved, gave our life to Christ, God had a plan of good works for us to accomplish. And he specifically gifted us to carry out those plans. One of the problems we have in the church is we try to keep on putting our stuff on other people. I had a great pastor say to me one time, never let anybody put their hair cut on you. Right? So... <laughs> That's funny. It, I mean, it, because, you know, I mean, I, I, many times was I lectured when I was a kid that you have to be up at four in the morning to pray and to read your Bible. Dude, I don't get up at four in the morning. I'm not I, up at four in the morning. Praise God. I don't either. I'm not a morning. <laughs> I'm not a morning person and God's not going to hold that against me. I'm a night person. So actually that's yes. when I, that's when I spend most of my time with Amen. the Lord is like at, at, at night, right before bed, I like watch sermons. I read my Bible. I love that time. And I listen to worship music because the mornings are no bueno for me. You know, like I, I just sit there for an hour, hold my coffee and staring out the window. With, you know, So we, is, we tend to try to put our stuff on other people. And we also try to put our giftings onto other people. Mm-hmm. And so, you mm-hmm. know, Beckett, gosh, we need help in the nursery with the, with the babies changing diapers and I, God's telling me you should work in the nursery. Well, then you're not gifted to work in the nursery, nor am I, nor are most men. So um, we all have our giftings. And so my point being, we tend to, the Bible says what men greatly value, God finds repugnant. So we tend to worship the person who runs the big ministry, who's on the stage, who's written the books, who has the big podcast. Mm-hmm. But actually the mother who's raising godly kids I know. She may be more in line with the will of God than we are. She is doing the, the, the good works that God created for her to do and gifted her to do. And so salvation, free gift. After you're saved, you're born again. You know, you're a baby. Now, what are you going to do with your salvation? And God says, I have great rewards to give to those people who have done their salvation. The last words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22, he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to each person according to what he has done. Oh boy. He's yeah, not talking it, unbelievers. He's talking to believers. 
And you talk about the Bema Seat, you kind of explain the Bema Seat, but uh, it's funny because I didn't really fully grasp uh, the Bema Seat and, and the and e- eternal rewards until I was in seminary in 2014. And, um, and I, I was, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. I, I didn't really understand it. And then <clears throat> what's interesting about re- rewards is that they're eternal. <laughs> so. <laughs> So talk about what is the Bema Seat of Christ and what happens at that moment. So I'll I'll throw in an extra that's not in the book because I'd written it in my last book and I didn't want to repeat it. So Paul says, run the race to win. Compete like an athlete for the prize, right? What does Paul mean? We we Americanize the Bible. We we put it through our our own experience. But Paul is actually bringing his, his Greek experience, his Roman experience. So mm-hmm. Paul, what he says that is talking about the Isthmian Games. So yeah. the Isthmian Games, you would compete to represent your city in the games if you were able to be qualified. So now any every believer now is qualified. You would have two people who would be assigned to you to watch your every move, and so you would train for ten months for the games. And a trumpet would blow in the morning, telling you when to get up, and another trumpet would would blow for to you to start training. And you could only eat certain foods. You couldn't have alcohol or a bunch of other stuff. And these guys would watch you. And if there was ever one moment in 10 months when you weren't giving maximal effort, you were disqualified at home. You think about that. In 10 months of intensive training, if you take it easy for one minute, you're done. If you win the Isthmian Games, you're called up to the Bema Seat. Now, at the Bema Seat, you're given rewards. The first thing you're given is a crown. It's usually a, a, a wreath, like a leaf crown. It's right. A, a, a laurel re- crown. Yeah like that. Then usually if you went back as a champion, they would cut a hole in the wall that only you and your family could go through. And the idea was with a champion in our city, this great, we can have a hole in our wall and we're still secure. Then your kids would be, you and your kids would be forgiven for taxes for their lifetime. And they would be educated for free. You'd be given a place in the city council. You would be given rewards that went for your life, perpetuity for you and your children. So when Paul talks about run the race to win, this is what he's talking about, that kind of intensity. And he's talking about the Bema Seat. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God, the Bema Seat, to uh, be judged for the deeds done in the body, whether good or worthless. Not good or bad. Some some translations say that, but the actual Greek is worthless because we've been forgiven for the bad. Now we're going to be judged based on our good works or nothing works. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, hey, we're going to look at your life and all the, the empty stuff's going to burn up. All the times that you, Ken Harrison, sat watching the Oregon Ducks, no problem, no sin, but not any value, right? <laughs> but the times when you were out feeding the homeless, right, there's rewards here. So that's the Bema Seat idea is the not a, not a judge, like a, like a court judge, but like an athletic judge. The king is giving you the wreath and the rewards for what you've accomplished. And so Jesus tells us in Revelation 2, don't let anybody steal your rewards. Paul says, I'm striving for everything in me. And he finally says in 2 Timothy, his last book, when he's about to be put to death, he goes, now I know I've earned the crown of righteousness. And not only me, but everyone who loves is appearing. So there are certain crowns. There's five different crowns promised to us for those who do certain things. And that crown Paul was talking about was the crown of a life all the way to the end. What's the, yeah. Cause you mentioned the crowns in your book. What's the crown of mastery? Um, that's the one of self-control. Um, 
we are so so jesus promises to the overcomer i will give him permission to sit on my throne with me at my father's right hand the overcomer of what the overcomer of this world and one of the things we'll have to do to be overcomers is the crown of mastery a lot of the conversation we're having today is culture tells us that we're all a bunch of sexual deviants and we have to have sex all the time and that's just you, you can't help yourself and, and we also have to identify, we have to have an identity, not only just have sex all the time, but we have to have some sort of sexual identity. Even, by the way, even heterosexuality isn't a biblical concept. It's a Freudian concept. Right. <laughs> it's the biblical Thank concept you. is God made, created male and female and, and, you know, to be in union, uh, in a covenant of marriage for life, um, and become one flesh. That's the co- biblical concept, but we've created these categories of heterosexual, homosexual, like bisexual, transsexual, uh, you know, pansexual, uh, asexual. Um, but yeah, continue. Sorry. By the way, I, I'll, I'll get back to this in a minute. I want to grab that. We got to be careful about framing because we continue to let people who don't believe in truth frame the issue and then we respond to their framing, right? So, as, and you and I have talked about this. I was born this way. I can't help it. Okay. Don't start arguing about whether they were born that way or not. Because you don't know how you were born. And I don't know how I was born. I mean, I remember having crushes on girls when I was five years old. But I certainly don't remember how I felt when I was two. Right? Yeah. So the issue is, I don't know how you were born. And neither do you. But I know what is. Right? We were all born sinners. And I may have been born with more of a proclivity to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or 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 poor. All of those are sin that Jesus forgives. So we have to stop responding to framing. And one of the framing things is when we start talking about transgender, there is not a transgender. There is a dude wearing a dress. That's what he is. When we take their language, we empower them and we we erode away at the truth. We've got to be smarter staying on truth. The guy in a dress is not a transgender woman. It's a guy in a dress. It's a it's a man pretending to be a woman is really what yeah. it is. It's not a man becoming a woman. There's no such thing, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. So and, the yeah, credit mastery is overcoming all this foolishness of the world, the temptations of the world, and staying self-disciplined. And one of the gifts of spirit is self-control. Like that's where it all starts. You must have self-control if you want to start, as we've been talking about. Um I, I can't love my neighbor, who's a woman, if I'm lusting after my neighbor, because it's going to affect how I think about her. Right. I don't, I don't not lust after her by trying really hard. I don't lust after her by falling in love with Jesus and by putting on his mindset. And as I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I think like Christ, my thoughts become less aligned with this world and more aligned with heaven. And when we do that, suddenly we find ourselves on the road of the Sermon on the Mount. We start to mourn the state of this world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? You're supposed to walk around feeling miserable? No. When you have your thoughts aligned with Jesus Christ, you now start to feel heartbroken at the state of the world because you look at people and you go, you don't have to be that miserable if you'd only let me tell you about the truth. So your mindset changes. Yeah. And by the way, you you go into great detail on the Sermon on the Mount in your book. And just, just kind of remind the viewers what the sermon on the mount is not how to become a christian it, the sermon on the mount is so just to kind of explain that yeah i'll make that short so jesus is surrounded by the crowds he takes his apostles the 12 
and he gets away from the crowds. He goes up to the top and he sits down with just the 12. Now, by the time the sermon's over, the crowds come back, but he's only talking to his disciples. Here's how you become a true follower of me. This is not how to become a Christian. He starts off with the, the Beatitudes. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he takes us all the way through. This, the key to holiness, the first step is becoming poor in spirit. What that means is when you realize you didn't bring anything to the family of God, you're a sinner saved by his grace. And what you get to be is someone filled with the Holy Spirit to make a difference. As long as you think that you're special, you have pride, you, you bring something, you ain't even started on the road to holiness yet. But when you get to the point of lowliness where you finally realize, man, I'm not that great. And we all have those moments back, don't we? Where you, you start to feel good about yourself, and all of a sudden something is there to remind you I'm not that great. Poor in spirit. The next one is blessed are those who uh, By the way, that reminds me of uh, nothing in my hands I bring uh, simply to the cross I cling, the, the hymn. Is it, I think that's the right, those are the right lyrics, but go ahead. Do you like me? I mean, I like the hymns to me are so much better than modern music. Oh, of I course. So old or what, but. <laughs> <laughs> the lyrics are so amazing. You know? Yeah, I always say, like, you know, the newer contemporary Christian music is so theologically anemic. Like, they basically could just be kind of pop love songs. You don't even know what they're talking about. And the the hymns are so theologically rich that yes. uh, you you actually learn, you know, you, you're reminded yes. of who you are in Christ. You're you're reminded of, of theology. It's amazing. So, but go out. Go ahead with uh, well, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley and those good boys had it figured out. Yeah. So now you're on the road to holiness, and you you keep going. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, um, blessed are the meek. And you get to the end. So Jesus is now giving you. This is Matthew chapter five, starting with being poor in spirit. That's the the start to being holy. Is when you are no longer arrogant, but you're humble, and you realize the cost of your salvation. And at the very end, Jesus says, "Okay, here's the last step. Here's how you know when you're holy." I already quoted the verse. Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. So you become holy. Congratulations. Everybody hates you. Which is pretty much the promise. Like I say to men when I speak to them all the time, you know, if they say you can judge a man by his friends, I say you can judge a man by his enemies. Who hates you and why? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have any enemies, you ain't doing it right. And those enemies, if they come because you're gracious and filled with love, for people, then you know you're, you're a man who is becoming holy in the eyes of God because the world, Jesus says, will hate you, not might, will hate you because yeah. they hated me first. Yeah. And you say that um, you talk about in, in, in one of your chapters, I think it's called Called to Hate Sin. Um, I really like this. And, and I remember Tim Keller talked about this sort. It was a similar illustration of. The day before the emancipation emancipation proclamation, black black Americans were terrified of white Americans. The day after emanci- the emancipation proclamation, they if if a, a black person went into the town square and saw a white person, they even though they were technically free, uh, they would still have this instinctual kind of fear. And you talk about that. Um, you say that on wait page 63 let me just find it real quick yeah you say to many too many believers to uh too many believers today don't understand that they're no longer slaves to sin so how you know, how i mean how do we as believers how do we 
kind of change that thought pattern in our mind that we're that we're not we're no longer in bondage to sin that we're no longer slave to sin because it old, is a, it's a deeply embedded pattern in our mind that's right yeah there's an old um saying an ancient saying that says you are what you think about and i think that's very true and what are you dwelling on all day and so this is why the bible says renew your mind all the time romans chapter uh, 12 1 and 2 says um be transformed not conformed to this world and when you are you will know the good pleasing and perfect will of god literally your promise if you're transformed by scripture and not conformed to the world you'll know what god's will is so if you're spending your time and i mean i'm not trying to be judgmental i'm just trying to tell people if you want to be holy if you're spending your time watching hbo or reading crap or on social media all day that is going to become that this is shaping your soul it's shaping you yeah yeah if you're dwelling on the things of the lord if you're reading a scripture if you're in prayer if you're contemplating I me mean, david says all the time my lord i love your law and i meditate day and night we could say i love scripture i meditate on day and night then you you just you're not in love with this world i I, I, I hate being on social media. I, I have to go on it once in a while because I have people do my social media and it's like I go on there and respond to it. But literally, it makes me depressed if I'm on there for five minutes. Oh, I, it's I a hellscape. It's a pure hellscape. Twitter, dude. Ugh. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Just... But you are what you think about. So you if you want to stop being a slave of sin, then stop entertaining sin in your heart and in your mind. And, you know, I do. I, I love Lord of the Rings, you know, I uh huge Lord of the Rings fan. I've read it three, three times. You know, I love Narnia and all that stuff. And I've had more Christians tell me I have to watch Game of Thrones. You do. You have to watch Game of Thrones. It's so amazing. And I'm like, um, I turned it on once on an airplane. And as soon as I turned it on, it was some ridiculous sex scene. And I turned it off and I've never watched it. Well, I don't want to watch that stuff. Wow. But dude, it's, it's so cool though. If you just, I'm not saying whether you can watch it. I'm not going to put my hair cut on you. If you like Game of Thrones, great. I don't choose to fill my mind with that garbage. And so if you really want to become holy, if you want to escape the clutches of sin, then you need to do the things that remove you from those, from those clutches. And if you're feeding that in your mind, then you are what you think about. You know? Yeah. In one of my seminary classes, I remember uh, one of the uh, a professor asked the class, raise your hand if you've ever watched pornography. <laughs> and everyone was like, <laughs> Uh, he's like, don't worry. Like you've all watched pornography and it's like the game of Thrones, like all those, any TV show that you've ever watched, there's a sex scene in it. That's that, that's what I think a lot of people don't un- like, don't really understand is that those sex scenes on seemingly innocent, you know, NBC shows, primetime NBC, whatever those sex scenes, that's pornography. That's pure pornography. No, you got a much stricter definition of it than I do. And um, and when you said, I, I I mentioned this in my book, I think, but um, I always say this, you know, if you've watched an hour of Netflix, you've been lied to for an hour, and implicitly or ex- explicitly, and now you need to read the Bible, read the Word of God for an hour to renew your mind. And that's and and sadly, like that's what <clears throat> that's I, I you know that's why I think the state of the church is where it is um, right now. The state of the evangelical church, especially uh, is that we are being so shaped by the culture and, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, 
it may be puzzling to people like, oh, why, you know, why are so many churches becoming gay affirming or becoming or, you know, even becoming pro-choice or, or um, why is that happening? And it's like, well, gee, I wonder what's happened in the last 50 years. Maybe it's the culture, the power of because um, media, especially uh, storytelling is the most powerful form of persuasion, especially when it's in motion pictures. And so when you're inundated with that constantly and it's all around us all the time, of course, that's going to shape your understanding of yourself, the world of God, and it's going to change. I mean, I've, I've known so many, when I first got saved at my church in 2009, uh, everyone at my church was completely on board, you know, rallied around me, was so supportive and loving. And a lot of those same people have not only left the church, but are now gay affirming. The very people that were so loving to me and so excited for me to get saved and so supportive of all of that are now on the other side of this chasm. And it's so bizarre. It's crazy to me. And I'm like, well, gee, I wonder how that changed. And it is. It's the power of the culture. And that's why, where's my Bible? That's why this has to be, you know, the the thing we look to all the time. To renew, we need to just jam this in our heads all day long. I think there is something. So let's quote, you know, Bible verse that I'm sure you know very well. First Corinthians chapter six, do not be deceived. Adulterers, idolaters, the sexually immoral, practicing homosexuals, the Greek is more specific than that, but for the English. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, thieves, greedy people, verbally abusive and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so were many of you. But now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been redeemed by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so you have a list, eight sins there. All the people Paul's talking to used to be all those things. Now they're not because they've been washed. We have to remember a couple of things. The first one is all of those are put on equal platform. So if you're an adulterer, you're the same as the verbally abusive. You're the same as the greedy person, and you're the same as the homosexual. What we do as people is we, in our sinful nature, always want to find a reason to feel superior to somebody else. That's where mm-hmm. racism comes in, right? Well, I'm this, so I'm better than you because you're that, right? But we do it in a million ways, huh? wherever we take our identity. And so I went to Harvard. You didn't go to Harvard, so I'm better than you. I, I didn't actually go to Harvard. I went to I went to the Oregon, Harvard or the West Coast. I went to Oregon State. But um, <laughs> we're always trying to find something. So it, it's always been a history of the religion, not true Christianity, to try to find some way, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, right? So I may be greedy, but at least I'm not an adulterer and all those things. God came to save us from every one of those sins. None of those sins is placed above or below the rest of them. Yeah. So let's let's close with this, um, because people who might be watching or listening might, you know, be convicted by this or inspired by this conversation. And so, I mean, we've kind of touched a a bit on this before, but, but what, like kind of, if there's, if someone might ask like, well, what do I do? What's, what kind of steps do I take? Or what do I do now? 
because I want to be all in for Christ. Where do I begin? You know, John 3, John chapter 3, the famous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us some that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's followed by anyone who believes in my name is not condemned, but anyone who doesn't believe me is already condemned, right? So salvation is really simple. It is put your faith in Jesus Christ. He does all the work. And to say, no more self-effort, no more keeping part of this me to myself. I want, Lord Jesus, you to have it all. And I want you to come in and take possession of me. It's a very simple process. You know, I had a, a very respected major pastor say to me a few weeks ago, well, we all have an agenda. You know, Ken, even you have an agenda that we're trying to do. And I was like, I don't have an agenda. I just want to please Christ. So I know he meant what he said, but I'm like, I had to go back to him and go, bro, I, you're wrong. I, I do have an agenda. If you want to say giving my all to Jesus is an agenda, but if you think everybody on earth has some kind of selfish ambition agenda, you're missing it, man. I don't care how big your church is. So uh, did I answer the question okay? Did I? Did I uh, yeah. So, I mean, basically, just where where can someone just kind of start i guess it's just you know fully surrendering to to christ and saying you know jesus i want to be courageous i want you to use me in this world i and i don't care what the consequences are i don't care if it costs me my job my livelihood my life i want to just sir, follow you and serve you and wherever that leads and just have your way with me like no matter what I think that's kind absolutely, of... absolutely the attitude. And I guess if you want specifics, it's, it's Matthew five through seven, where, where Jesus lays out the really tough things. But I, I would say on the good news is if you, if you want to be in a place that God is our father, he loves his children and he will never throw you out of his family. So if you're a lazy, complacent Christian, well, then you go to heaven as lazy, complacent Christian, you, you're not going to go to hell. I mean, but boy, Judgment Day is going to be a bummer when you're watching, you know, Beckett Cook get all these rewards and awards and crowns and rulerships. And so what we do in this in this walk, Beckett is really important. And I want to encourage people. That's why I wrote the book. Salvation is really easy. But walking with Christ every day is really hard, but really worth it. And you're not going to do it by self-effort. You're going to do it by giving up all. I may have been born an alcoholic or homosexual or the crazy sex drive or super insecure where I need to hoard as much wealth as I can or whatever it may be. Only you can give up all to Christ. He will heal you, but you've got to make the choice. The prodigal son, as he he rebelled against his dad, he had to turn and repent. And when he did, that's when his father came running to him. He'll forgive everything, even Christians. If we come to him and repent and say, today, I don't, not like Ken Harrison, I don't have to be laying on a gurney facing death. Maybe this is just the moment where I say, I'm through being lukewarm. Today is the day, and you have to make the choice every day. Daily pick up your cross and follow him. It's really hard, but it's also really easy. Kind of bizarrely, I don't know how to put it any different. But because, it. well, it's easy because we have the Holy Spirit dwell, indwelling us. So it, it, we, have the, uh, we have supernatural power to, to take up our cross and follow him. So that's, And that's, you would feel that. Like you... Like I, I was, I've been a Christian filled with the Spirit my whole life. But you know the difference between not having the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit. Beckett, that gives you when you were fully immersed in the world and all it had to offer, 
I mean, dude, I want to go to Prince's house and have a private concert. I mean, I love Prince. <laughs> I mean, you, you you lived in the world and you did it right. And now you you are where you are. You've seen the difference and you now know the joy and the peace that fills your heart. And you're going, dude, it was so hard, but it's also so easy. Like, it's just I, the best way I could compare it is kind of like getting in shape. You know, I have a choice. I can go home tonight and open up a bag of potato chips and watch Game of Thrones. Or I can go home and, hey, I'm 56, man, I don't run anymore. I take my dog for a long walk. So I can go take my dog for a long hike around, you know, the trees of Colorado. Both of those choices have consequences. Yeah. Right? The one, and I don't always feel like taking my dog for a long walk. The benefits of that make for a much, much better life overall than sitting on my couch eating potato chips every day. But God says, choice is yours, brother. Do what you want to do. There's consequences to it. That is all of life, and it is our spiritual life. Jesus says, you have a choice. I've given you all you need to have to be filled with joy and power and unity, have a great marriage, have great kids. And here's the recipe, and it's Matthew 5 through 7. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there. And uh, I thank you for coming on the show. Guys, thank you for watching. And thank you, Ken Harrison, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.